It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, most of you will probably remember Steve King if you paid even passing attention to what was going on in the halls of Congress from 2003 to 2021. For a lot of people, they would describe him as maybe the most conservative member of the Republican conference. Other people would say that he was the most controversial member Others would say that he was both. Well, you know, if there's controversy to be had, I'm all about covering it on this program. Uh, Very, very pleased to welcome author of the book, Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America, former Republican congressman from Iowa, Steve King. Congressman, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining me. Well, thanks a lot for having me on. I appreciate it, Frank, and I appreciate having a voice out there across all your listeners. So let me begin before we talk about your story and your career and your book. Um, One of your earliest and I would think most early controversial votes was the vote on the war in Iraq. And uh, this yesterday was the 20th anniversary of the beginning of the war in Iraq. Everybody has 20-20 hindsight vision. But looking back then at what we know now, do you have any regrets about your vote on the Iraq war? Mm -hmm. Well, it's one that I've I've reflected on quite a bit, and especially right now. And uh, I look back at that time, I'd just arrived in Congress and and barely knew where the bathrooms were, and they're shipping us off to the Pentagon into the tank for classified briefings and having classified briefings in the Capitol. Um, the CIA is delivering to us the threads of, of intel that they had gathered from satellite information, et cetera, and putting the pieces together. Um, I looked at it. It looked sketchy to me. Uh, on the other hand, the inertia of all of that was just swept us all in that direction and swept the nation in that direction, too, as I think you commented. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, if I had a do-over on that, here's where I would have started. I would have started calling them out on the on the intel and saying, these little trailers you've got that you say are now going to be used for chemical weapons of mass destruction, um, they're parked in a little orchard somewhere. We don't know where that is, and, and what's your evidence beyond that? Uh, things of that nature. But the images that I saw... A lot of them still are framed in my mind, and and it was sketchy. But on the other hand, I could make an argument that when George Bush said that we'd recently learned that Saddam Hussein was seeking uranium in Africa, that holds up to be true, although I don't think he ever got his hands on any of it. So that would be a nice one to have back and live over again. I wish our nation could live it over again. Mm. Uh, the tragedy poured in on um, the, the tragedy to the families in Iraq and the families here and around the world it could have been avoided. Do you do you fault the Bush administration at all for how they sold this to both you in Congress and to the public? Well, you know, I maybe should more than I do, but I, that's just passed back in, in it kind of a bit into the history of my mind. At, at the time, I didn't make the call at the time. 
It's hard for me to look back and say, where did they get it wrong? Did they believe what they sent to sent to us? I think they actually, I think they believed it. And um, I have made between nine and a dozen trips into Iraq and Afghanistan, some of that with people that were way on the cutting edge of that. I was one of the first members to go in uh, during the war period of time. And uh, there's, there's one very solid witness that was a top Army logistics procurement officer that hired some of Saddam's um, what should I say, nuclear scientists, and put that in quotes, um, also that, um, th- that he believed and made a case to me that Saddam thought he had weapons of mass destruction. There's always that question, what did Saddam believe? And you, why, why didn't he just simply say, open my country up to come and see, I don't have any of this stuff. I think he believed he had it. There's at least, wait a minute, there's a chance that he believed he had it, and that might have been the impasse. Did, did Bush believe he had it? And did, did Saddam believe he had it? In the end, we didn't see enough evidence to justify everything that happened. And I do wish it had never happened. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I don't think you're alone among uh, your colleagues in that class of, uh, of Congress in either party. Talking with Steve King, his book is Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. Congressman, in reading through your book, and I have not read the whole thing yet, but um, it seems to me that this is sort of your attempt to rewrite your legacy, or should I say write your legacy and not have it defined for you by so many of your critics, including uh, the uh, people that you served with in Congress. Now, the sort of official record of Steve King goes something along the lines of January 2019, you do an interview with the New York Times, And you're asked about the terms white nationalist, white supremacist, and um, you say in words or substance, white nationalist, white supremacist, Western civilization. How did that language become offensive? Well, that interview, as you know far better than I do, that ignited a firestorm. You were subsequently condemned by a lot of Republican members of Congress, the now Speaker, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Senate Majority Leader at the time, Mitch McConnell, conservative commentator Ben Shapiro called for you to be censured and to be primaried. A lot of other Republicans who you would call colleagues for a long time denounced either you personally or your rhetoric. Um, you lost reelection and now you're writing this book. What are you hoping people get out of this book? And what is incorrect about the sort of official tale of the tape of Steve King? Well, yes. Uh, first of all, the the attacks that had been coming at me through the media really began back as far back as 2013 or so in any level of intensity. And and I've got some Irish blood in me, and that means that you have to use superlatives and hyperbole, make the point. I made my living in the construction business. That means you got you got to tell things real straight to get things done the way they must be. And uh, that, that style is something that's followed me through for all of my adult life. Uh, but um, I made points that had to be made at the time they had to be made, and there was exceptions, objections were raised by the left, and over time, the people on the Republican side thought that that was becoming a, a liability to them. That's just more or less the, oh, a little bit of the narrative that flowed from 2013 up until 19. But I had been also making the case that we need to defend Western civilization. In 2016, uh, opening night of the Republican convention in Cleveland, I did a panel there on Get this, MSNBC, and uh, there, uh, the last words that were to be said in that panel was by Charlie Pierce of Esquire magazine, and uh, he said, 
one can be an optimist and hope that this is the last Republican convention where old white people have anything to say about it. And they were going to close that segment out. And there I am, seated, a seated member of Congress. And I said, Charlie, those words are getting really tiresome. I'd invite you to tell us all what subgroup of people has accomplished more. And Chris Hayes turned to me with a leer and he said, than white people. I said, then Western civilization itself, as defined by everywhere where the footprint of Jesus Christ laid down the foundation for civilization. Well, that started uh, um, April Ryan's hyperventilating, like she had the vapors, and Charlie's trying to talk. Well, anyway, that's when I learned that defending Western civilization was a hot button, and that the left would just, just uh, I'll say, they would hyperventilate uh, about def- against anyone who defended Western civilization. But I had been defending it and advocating for it for a long time. That's why those words came immediately to me. And that's what I was doing in the interview with the New York Times as well. It's very clear that I did an interview with Christian Science Monitor that was actually published after the New York Times, but done a week or so before the New York Times, that laid out the same case where I'm saying George Soros and the left are weaponizing terms like white nationalist, white supremacist, Nazi, racist was already nationalized. But I said, but Western civilization, when did that language become offensive? There was a pause between those other, the, the, the I'll call them the um, pejorative uh, 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 labels that white nationalists and white supremacists, which certainly I reject. I paused between those, but they didn't put any hyphen or any, any kind of common in between those things when they typed it into the New York Times paper. And they already knew before that article was published they were going to use that article to launch an assault on me. It was planned in advance. I had known about that since about the third week in the previous November that they would try again to try to attack me. And Trip Gabriel, who um, wrote the story for the New York Times, uh, said in a telephone conversation the following Monday, I didn't think that was going to be the words that did it. He knew his article was going to be used against me. That's what he wrote it for. But he didn't think that would be the term that would cause everyone to get up in arms. If you look at some of your detractors, there are whole pages of uh, of things that you've said going all the way back uh, to your time in the state Senate where they try to create a pattern of you being a white supremacist or anti-Semitic or uh, hateful in some manner or another. I, I have no interest in uh, reviewing every single one of these quotes and asking you to explain or contextualize them or uh, respond to their validity. But I do have a question about why so many of your Republicans, including a lot of people that you would kind of served with and soldiered with on the right for so many years, would join the ranks of those that would rebuke you and and denounce you. What what was it about what you were doing or saying that led so many of your colleagues to hang out to dry? Well, it was um, it was the virtue signaling leadership. Uh, that began this, and they didn't they didn't wait even an hour of all of those people that are there. And by the way, I have a big poster with their with pictures across each one of them. It's called this poster is titled "The Unforgiven." Um, it, mostly Republicans at higher level, and you name some of them. All of them had my cell number or were looking me in the eye on a regular basis, and not one of them called me to say, "Did you say this?" or "What did it mean?" Not one. Um, they knew when the party line came down from leadership, they were supposed to do and say, and they followed that. They were not independent thinkers, if you look at them today. Um, but Ben Shapiro, about you know, he's a virtue signaler extraordinaire. 
and uh, he knee-jerked on this thing quickly. But um, he's he's gotten stung a little bit now by the ca- the cancel culture too, and I think he might have a different opinion. But when it, in the end, if you can't ask a rhetorical question about why Western civilization has become such a target, uh, then how does our civilization survive if it's going to be based on freedom of speech, freedom of thought, and expression? And uh, there's a there's a scholar out of Kansas City named Jack. Uh, oh gosh, um, it'll come to me in a second. But he's a Ph.D. out of Purdue, and he re- he went down into every one of my quotes and uh, drilled down to the original into the context and came back and wrote an article that said any conservative would have been glad to and proud to have made, said those things within context. And he did he defined the meaning of them. Some of them was very hard to find the origins of it because they made them up. So that um, was, by the way, just very independent in Congress. Uh, they didn't really come to me and ever twist my arm for a vote because they knew I was going to make an independent decision, and I'd tell them what the decision was, and that was that. Um, I didn't need their money. I had um, I had the, the three previous elections I had won without spending a dime on advertising and by 60% plus or minus two points. And so I had reached the place where you'd want every legislator to be. And I've told the young people coming into the into the arena, if you want to be an independent voice in Congress, you need three things. You need voters that will support you, and you need a fundraising network out there that is independent, that they can't just cut that off, say, from the, from the PACs. And the third one is a national media voice so that you can tell the truth and punish leadership if they attack you. I had all three of those things. And they were very, very effective. And it took a nationwide effort to shut that down. In fact, it may have been even partially global in, in its reach. But it was a strategy and a plot that they pulled together. And uh, too few of my Republican friends stood up with me. But I also chaired the Conservative Opportunity Society for 16 years. And that's an off-the-record, doors-closed breakfast meeting that I hosted with just uh, many of the uh, top-named people in the country as, as guest speakers. And that room, even though nobody would talk to me on the floor of Congress in front of the C-SPAN cameras, that room would fill up on Wednesday mornings at 8 o'clock for folks to come in and be part of that breakfast. And I saw no difference in their personalities toward me in that room with the doors closed. But they were quite concerned about being caught up in this negative hit on me, and they knew not to step up and defend me. Um, for example, with the consequences – Louis Gohmert did stand up and defend me, and the following Sunday or a couple Sundays later was Martin Luther King Jr. Sunday, and in the largest Baptist church in Louis Gohmert's uh, congressional district in Texas, he he was scheduled to be the lead, the top, the speaker that delivered the, the message, the sermon that day, and the pastor of the Baptist church, a white pastor, by the way, called Louis and canceled him and said, Nobody that defends a racist will be speaking from my pulpit. That was the consequence wow. that Louis Gomer paid. The rest of them got the message, Frank. Well, we're talking with Steve King. His book is Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. So uh, just for the record, you would walk away from that label of white nationalist and certainly not identify yourself that way. Oh, absolutely. And, and in fact, there's a chapter in the book about the lives of Tanzanians that I was instrumental in saving. And I introduced and pushed the legislation forward that would save the most black lives of any legislation that's ever been introduced and carried to any distance in Congress. Uh, that record's there. Uh, black conservatives stood up to defend me. Um, and because 
they had been through a similar fire, accused of being being uh, Oreos and those kind of uh, disparaging things. So there's a lot of record there. People that stood on my side, a lot of them were black conservatives. Reverend Bill Owens of the Black Pastors Organization and uh, Diamond and Silk, God rest Diamond. They're both great friends. And you can go on down the list. One of them I admire a lot that we don't hear enough from is um, is Christopher Hayes. And excuse me, Christopher Harris, he's the president of the uh, Unhyphenated Americans. And so um, there's plenty of people there on that side that were there to defend me. But um, the people at the top of the political echelon at the national and the state level were all in rank, about a dozen of them. And all it would have taken would have been, say, someone like a Chuck Grassley to say, wait a minute, what are you doing here? What's the facts and the substance behind this? But no one would listen to me. Once this came down, there was nothing I could have said that would ever alter what they had set up to do. That's why I had to write the book, Frank. I know um, you alluded to your construction background and sort of the plain speaking way that folks talk with one another in the earth moving or the construction business and how that doesn't necessarily tidally fit in with uh, the way uh, Beltway politicos talk with reporters. Given what you've experienced and what you've been through, do you have any regrets at all on the language that you chose to use at any point during your tenure in Congress? You know, I I don't. That's a a straight up answer. I don't regret the language I used. There were times when I used it that it brought about a result that just had to be. And under one circumstance would be when when they were ready to move the, the act that would have legalized the dreamers. And it was the the Senate's 68 votes in the Senate to pass their huge Gang of Eights amnesty bill. And uh, I used some language there, no profanity ever out of me, by the way, but I used some language that caught all of them by, I guess, surprise and stunned. And uh, I've been accused by Democrat and Republican senators both as being the one who killed their amnesty bill back in about 2013 or 14. And so, no, I don't regret that. I said and did the things that need to be said and did. Everyone was honest. None of them were biased, and, and none of them had any threads of – none of them had racism in them or white supremacy in them. They were labeled that way by people that couldn't stand to stand up and face me in the actual arguments that were there. And sometimes they were so effective that it did something like kill that amnesty bill. We're talking with Steve King, former Republican congressman from Iowa, author of the new book, Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. Congressman, what are you... Sorry, Frank, could I have just just to add to this, I'd like to get this piece in and we're ready to transition, but um, the thing that I would do differently is this. I believed all the way up until about two weeks before the primary that I lost in June of 2020, all the way up to that, that honesty and facts and reason would have impact on Kevin McCarthy. I should have recognized him as the person that called the hit or one who was strongly supporting the person that called the hit on me and fought him directly rather than trying to negotiate with him because he strung the thing out. He lied to me directly and said that he was going to go and put me back on my committees. And that would have been all it took to solve the primary that I would lose later on. But he lied to me directly, and he went to the press in a few days, and he lied to the press as well and said, I never had that conversation with Steve King, but I've got notes, I've got tape, and I've got witnesses. And so I should have taken him on directly and fought him directly. I didn't do that, and I probably would have lost that too, but it would have been at least targeting the right, the right bullseye. What are you hoping people take away from this book? Well, I'd like to have them know that 
you know, you can go forward with all the level of altruism that's there. And I grew up in a law enforcement family. My father lectured to me from the the Bible and the Constitution and the Code of Iowa and how it all structured together. And uh, I don't don't know that it was coming at this from a, a naive way. Everybody's naive to some degree or another. But if you walk the line as straight as can be and you function according to your commitments and the promises you make to your constituents and you get reelected over and over again because you're doing the job they ask you to do, the job you proposed you would do, the one that reflects my internal full spectrum constitutional Christian conservatism, that's too much for some people that are in this business for something else. They want to be able to manage and control. And when they could not get when they could not get their elitist establishment candidates through the Iowa caucus, the first in the nation caucus, because Steve King had too much leverage for that to happen. Um, that was another force that came against me. So that, what should I call it? That, that constellation of elitists at the top of the party and the operators within the political campaigns, state and national decided this guy's got too much power and we have to do something to take mm-hmm. him down. It was a, almost a, a universal effort on the part of the people at the top. And when I finished my book, I thought, all of these people that are here, not one of them stood up for the principles that I thought they had enough integrity to do. But in the end, no, not one of them did. The facts are there, and no one has challenged one word in this book. Every word is utterly true. It's footnoted and it's documented. One of the issues that has sort of been reignited recently because of Nikki Haley's candidacy and because of the fact that she keeps bringing this up is the uh, Confederate flag issue. It, it was reported by a journalist for the for the Iowa starting line that you displayed the Confederate flag on your office desk, even though the Iowa was a part of the Union during the Civil War. I, is that true? Did you display the Confederate flag? Yes, right next to my Iowa flag, my U.S. flag, my Catholic flag, my Gadsden flag, and my POW flag. And there's a good reason for that, Frank. Um, I walked into my office one day, and a big old screen TV debate was going on on the floor, and I asked my staff, what's this debate about? And they said, Democrats are bringing amendments to take the Confederate flag down anywhere where there's a federal wall that's there, any, any nexus that they can do that. And they're disparaging the South and and making making the flag about slavery. And uh, so as soon as I heard that, I ran down to the floor and it's all the way through the tunnel. And I got on the floor. I was puffing, but I got I was recognized and uh, I made a speech down there. It's a matter of the congressional record. It's about five minutes long. And and, and is this that the deal at Appomattox was that. The South got to keep their horses and go home and farm. They had to stack their long arms. The officers got to keep their their sidearms. And when the when the when the document was signed by General Lee and General Grant, of a, a regiment of Union troops fired a volley to celebrate. And Grant said, "Shut that down. We're not going to be doing this. Celebrate from this day forward. These rebels are our countrymen. They got to keep their Southern pride." And it was being taken away from them, and they were being labeled as all people that were advocating for slavery. And and it was just wrong to do that. And so when I got done with that speech, uh, then I asked my staff, go get me a Confederate flag. That's going to be a symbol of freedom of speech. And uh, so <laughs> a whole bunch of them refused to do it except my my Jewish fellow that was in the staff. He went and got me a Confederate flag, and, and I put it on my on my desk to be a symbol of freedom of speech. And you look at it today— 
they have they have taken that flag down all across the south i just came i drove down to the keys of florida and back again over the last five six weeks i only saw one confederate flag and that was at the memorial in northern mississippi uh they've taken it down and they've they've changed the definition of what that flag means if you would google um this is back then if you would google southern pride once you got past a few barbecues everything else is that flag which is actually the flag in northern virginia but we call it the Confederate flag. When you can, when you Google uh, slavery, you don't get a single flag on that screen. This is this is Google images and seven or eight pages of those images. Not a single Confederate flag when you Google slavery. It never meant slavery until they turned to change the definition. And the other thing that they did was our leadership was so afraid of the debate. They shut off the open rule, and this government's been running on continuing resolutions ever since. One of the things that uh, that we saw happen to you is uh, at your at the height of your controversy after Congress voted to denounce your remarks, you were a man with no committees. Uh, these days, there's another Republican with no committees in Congress, and that's uh, Congressman George Santos. Obviously, he arrived to his level of controversy in a much different manner. Um, mostly through resume fabrication and outright dishonesty. But I'm curious, as a guy that knows what it's like to be a, a, a an army of one, sort of a, a man with no committees, does part of you empathize when you see what George Santos is going through now in Congress? Well, only to the extent of what are the facts around George Santos. And um, as at this point, I don't know what they are. But there's so much out there, it seems to me there's got to be substance on some of it. And But Kevin McCarthy defended George Santos and said that he's elected by his constituents. And therefore, um, they're the ones that decide who's going to represent them. And since he'd just been elected, he was going to keep him in the conference. I wasn't aware that he didn't get any committee assignments. I thought he'd gotten some um, minor committee assignment or two. But I will say this, historically, in, in searchable history, I, I, George Santos, notwithstanding, because I don't know all the facts about him, but in searchable history, there has only been two other times that Republicans have removed any one of their members from all their committees that has happened by Republicans. And in both of those cases, they became convicted felons. And I was treated like a convicted felon for a misquote in The New York Times. One of the things that uh, is still true of the Republican primary contest these days is that Iowa is a pivotal state. As the first in the nation caucus, it sort of sets the stage for the next few primaries and maybe even the whole election. I know initially you were a Ted Cruz supporter, but then you were an enthusiastic Trump supporter in the general election. Looking Mm -hmm. at the Republican field shaping up as it is now, what direction are you leading among, uh, among all the candidates that are in the race or poised to jump into the race? And who do you think is going to fare the best in Iowa? Well, that's sure a good question. It's, it's fairly early in this process. up, And uh, I've, uh, I've been contacted by two campaigns at this point. I'd point out that uh, they must believe that my political capital has been restored. And I think my book, Walking Through the Fire, has done a lot to do that. And uh, I know there's a poll out there that asked that question by one of the candidates, and they just came back and contacted me today and asked for some help. So they must have gotten a positive answer. But uh, as this sets, I want to see these candidates compete with each other. I want to see ideas out there on the debate stage, and I want to see caucus scores sort those ideas out and provide their input to bring some new ideas, perhaps. But if, if I had to call it today, Donald Trump stands stands at the first place in this state. 
And um, as far as uh, DeSantis is concerned, and I served with him on every year he was in Congress, we were on the Judiciary Committee together. He has all he's he is presidential timber. I don't question that at all. Um, he's got a, a lot of the right instincts and all the capability to be an excellent president of the United States. But for right now, I think we've got we've got weaponized government. Um, we've got the, the executive branch of government using itself, using against its political opponents and may happen again this week if there is an indictment of Donald Trump. But when they raided Mar-a-Lago back on August 8th, that was pretty much it for me. There's no pretense any longer. This government's got to be cleaned up. And if there's anybody that can do it, um, it would have to be Donald Trump, who who has he, he knows who they are. Uh, I think he knows what to do about it. And there's a bit of vindictive nature on the part of Trump. But I'm not ready to step up and endorse Donald Trump yet. Um, we've got a couple things to work out personally before that might happen. But I, I want to see him come here, campaign, compete. And I, I sure want to see our government squared away so it's back on a constitutional foundation. This corruption is the worst that I know of in the history of this country. Lastly, sir, you alluded to the fact that uh, you're still popular, according to some opinion polls and to some of the people that want votes of Iowans. I'm wondering, you're still a young man and still very up on a, a lot of the issues that Congress is dealing with these days. Would you ever consider running for Congress again from Iowa or running for something else? Well, going back to Congress, I'd have to figure out how to build some kind of a power base with Kevin McCarthy as speaker. So that doesn't look very, uh, very bright to me. And uh, where I am right now is I'm I'm doing a whole lot of consulting work. It's all I do it all pro bono. And I just tell them, no, don't pay me. I don't want anybody to be my boss. But it keeps me busy throughout full days. And um, the, as the presidential campaign un- unfolds here, I expect to have uh, some more involvement. I'm not reaching out to it. I'm waiting for it to come to me. But, uh, you know, I'll be the, I'm kind of the last person to learn what my real image is today in Iowa because uh, you just can't always filter it when it's on your, your yourself. But many times it comes to me and people say, all the, all the capital you had before, it's all back. And Iowans are, Iowa Republicans at least, are resentful of what Kevin McCarthy and others did to deny them the representation that they had voted for. And by the way, uh, I had been elected, just elected when Kevin McCarthy pulled this number on me in January of 2019. Steve King, former Republican congressman from Iowa, author of the book, Walking Through Fire, My Fight for the Heart and Soul of America. I appreciate the time. I hope we can talk again in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks a lot for your time, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you can give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight.